0: Good morning, friends. Hey, worship arts had a couple of people fall out last night, and preaching after worship like that is like cheating, I think, yeah, that, with the quality that that was. So give it up for them for pulling that together. You would never have known. That was, it's like cheating now following that. So um, you've noticed the baptismals have, uh, are filled with candy. Plot twist on the devil, his holiday is one of our biggest events around here. And um, it was first a Christian holiday. But uh, yeah, it's one of the biggest events around here. Simple little things like that. People that would never step foot on our campus do because of Spooky Brook. And from things like that to building great structures like the Reverie, it's because of you. We're temporary proprietors of your precious resources that we turn into ministry, um, funneling it through the year and out into the world. And uh, you know, the Reverie, uh, here's how your, how your resources impact. I heard last week, Reverie had a couple that was married in the Reverie, and they named their first child, Reverie. That's right. Isn't that wild? It's better than the alternative, you know, that could have happened, I suppose. You know, a kid says, Dad, why was my name Sandals Jamaica? <laughs> We're having this talk now. <laughs> um, you do that. You make things happen out here and out in the world. And uh, if you are new today, we have generosity boxes in the back of the room, and most of us, staff, and myself included, use the Pushpay app, pushpay.com. You can set up reoccurring donations there and uh, you know, join in, in this movement. Uh, I want to pray before we go into all this. Lord, let your word be found true here and mine be found in grace. You've tilled the soil for a long time to get to this point today, and uh, we ask that your spirit would preach instead of me. In Jesus' name, amen. I felt an urgency of heart for this Sunday. I'm a hunter by nature, and three months, July or so, when the teaching schedules went out and said, here are the dates, boys, go for it, I said, that one, I want that one, that date, that passage, Romans 3, 21 through 26. I am desperate for it. I've, I've prayed through it every night. It's been on my nightstand. It's, 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 been a, it's been bound to my heart. It's a definitive day, in every church of every generation since complement of Rome in the second century, until now, when Romans 3, 21 through 26 is brought out. It's a big day. It's, it, you can't preach it like any other passage. And you can't listen to it like any other passage. And so today's going to be different. It's going to be a little different. It's going to be ugly before it's beautiful. It's just how you have to deal with the passage. We have to deal with it on its terms, and those are the terms we have to deal with it. It's going to be ugly before it's beautiful. And one of the things we have to do from the start is I want to give you the applic- an application first, as opposed to the end, to the takeaway uh, this is me not providing you a fish. This is me teaching you how to fish, okay? When you come to explicit gospel texts, gospel proper texts, crucifixion texts, blood texts of, of, of Jesus and his cross, it's divisive by nature. Scandalous is one of the words used in the New Testament for gospel texts like this. It's divisive by nature, not between person to person, preacher to listener, but between the gospel Proclamation that God has acted in history through a person named Jesus, who is God, and here, it's divisive, it divides. There are only one of two ways that you can respond, no matter how long you've been a Christian, only one of two ways that you can respond to gospel texts. The first is, is just, you know, kind of hyper-orthodoxy. It's not why I'm at a church like Southbrook. I came for five steps to how to better manage my business and, you know, improve my spiritual wellness health. Not this. I'll check out. It's not my kind of message. The other way, you respond to this passage with a feeling of being a bit overwhelmed. How could you begin to understand it all? But you understand it just enough to where your only response to gospel division is you marvel like the angels. Worthy is the Lamb. That's it. He is worthy. And the Holy Spirit preaches to you at that moment. You're closer to the gospel. You see, the latter hears the gospel with a heart of surrender. And the other one, Christian, believer, professor of creeds, the mind is there, but it's not the heart. The heart's not ready. The heart's not in the mood. The way in which you're divided by the gospel depends upon how open you are to revival. We all want revival of nations. We all want revival of this Rome that's falling. That begins with the revival of one's heart. We all shower every day, do we not? Some of us apparently do. You know? I'm a runner, so I shower like three times a day and running twice a day in the summer or whatever. You know? We need revival. More than once a year. More than once and twice a life. There it was. I experienced the revival at that point in my life. I'm good. I can just health and wellness from here on out. Societal reformation begins with personal transformation, and that's what gospel texts demand of us. Are you ready for that? Do you want revival today? Of Jesus' last prophecies before his crucifixion, he said of those days, there will be lawlessness and cold-heartedness. Hmm? You'll hear of war, nation rising up against nation. Hmm? It's not yet the end. These are the beginning of the birth pains. Pray it's not in winter. Pray for the women and children. Scary stuff from our Lord. But beyond all that, you know what he says after that? Mark thirteen ten. The gospel must be preached. It's a redundant phrase. Gospel in and of itself means event proclamation. Preaching in and of itself means preaching. An event proclamation must be have an event of proclamation. What is he stressing there? The gospel must be preached because faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. At the very sound waves of verbal proclamation, the gospel, salvation happens in that very moment. Paul believed this to his core. Romans 1, 16, 17. Galatians 3, 2, and 5. Paul believed this to his core. When the gospel is preached, history moves forward. It has been in a cycle Sin entered the world, it goes in a cycle, and the law sustained the cycle of humanity, and then something broke in which released it and gave it the potential to move elsewhere. Hope. When the gospel is preached, when the gospel is heard, history moves forward. When the gospel is not preached, it stays in a cycle of isms, of violence, of hate, resentment, enslaved to Satan. But when the gospel is proclaimed, history progresses. Progression is inherently a Christian idea. Are you open to revival today? It's a kind of, it's a question, but it's a kind of, it's kind of warning. As I said, it's going to be different. This text demands it. It's going to be ugly before it's beautiful. But I've been praying for you for three months. And this is the kind of revival the text demands. Here it is. The most important, find whatever scholar you want. This is the most important passage of scripture. Here it is. Romans three twenty-one through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, which is attested by the law and the prophets, it has been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, there's no distinction, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, listen carefully. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. And this was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be the just and justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness, not yours, not mine, his. There's an umpteenth amount of ways we can look at this text. I picked three. Three windows we're kind of looking through. What is the gospel in history? What does it mean to history? What does the gospel mean in and of itself? And what is the gospel for your life? What does it, what does, when you take it into your life, what does it do? What happens? What does it mean? Gospel in history. How does it interject itself into the cycle? Gospel in meaning. What is the core of it? What is the substance of it? And then what does it mean for your life? So number one, what is the gospel in history? But Now. Paul exclaims in verse 21, but now. It's a temporal adverbial conjunction. It is, it's the hinge of the letter. Everything in the letter that we've gone through so far, it builds up to these two words, nunai day, Paul exclaims. And everything, after, everything that comes after in this letter comes out of nunai day, but now. It is the hinge of the letter because it is the hinge of history, of humanity, and it can only be a hinge in your life or nothing else. There's no other option. There's nothing smart to say about this. There's nothing funny to say about this. There's nothing charming to say about this. There's nothing that will help you in your health and wellness or the whatever, whatever. There's nothing. But it will change everything in your life as it's changed mine and so many throughout the years. The cross of Jesus is an event in history that happened in history for history and everything hinges upon it. The gospel is fixed. Everything revolves around it, accommodates to it. Everything goes through it, good and bad, and all that is dark that remains gets completely annihilated by its light and its love. History in a cycle of sin tearing itself apart. But now, when the gospel is preached, history moves forward. The cycle's broken, it's eclipsed by an event in history, and this is the proclamation. But now, Paul says to the cycle perhaps you brought in of your own today Amazing grace. How sweet the sound! Saved a wretch like me. I was lost, I was blind. As an exegete of this passage in this book for uh, two years, very specifically and very broadly, I finally understood it this spring. It was in a class my dad was teaching on Abraham Lincoln, and it hit me. I finally understood how to to, um, historically and grammatically really understand this passage. Through the emboldened words of November 19th, 1863, you know the words? Our 16th president. Four score, seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived, so dedicated, can long endure and we are met on a great battlefield of that war. And so we've come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. So it is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note what we long remember, what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us here to be dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion for the cause which they here gave their last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from this earth. Did you catch the hinge? Did you see it? Did you catch the butt now? Two things. What is it that makes the hinge? It's not the proposition, it's not the truth, it's not the, the noble idea, no matter how true and noble it is. Propositions are esoteric. Propositions don't save your lives. Propositions don't change your lives. They influence you. They don't change anything. Events in history changes everything. So number one, it's not a proposition. It's an action in history. But who's the action by in history? Is it by you? Is it by me? We cannot dedicate this ground. We cannot hollow this ground. We cannot consecrate this. It's someone else on behalf of others. I remember the first time I was a little guy but I I can vividly remember walking over those fields and through that grass in a time, it was about October probably, it was around 10. And I can actually remember thinking, the amount of blood that is in this grass, how bloody it is that man can hate each other to such a degree that this amount of blood can be held in a field. There's something that changes when the blood is spilled, the cosmic currency. There is a but now when the blood is spilled. This is the meaning of the gospel. What is the meaning of the gospel? It's the blood. I have to read, read for you because we we, you can't read it enough. Verse 25, what is the meaning of the gospel? God dis- publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. Next five minutes, this is me giving you a fish, okay? This is don't fish here, okay? These are deep waters. This is me giving you a fish. Okay, if you if if you were if, fine, if you weren't, if you were, if you're following along in a Bible, uh, no matter what translation you had, I'm using the NET. They're all fine. They're all great. It, your your verse 25 would look different, look very different from mine. That is because if you haven't noticed, we don't have a weekly or monthly sacrificial system set up where at the end of the week, we spill blood all over this thing and sacrifice it to the God or gods. If you haven't noticed, the closest thing we have to this is like a uh, credit card uh, reoccurring payment on your app. This is the closest thing we got to this. Not quite holy enough for the cross of Christ to use that as an illustration. No illustration's perfect, but that that one falls short. The dear Billy Graham in his sermon, The Real Meaning of the Cross, says that Jesus endured five basic wounds of medical science, contusion, When they beat him on the head, laceration when they stripped the skin off his back until he was bleeding head to toe, penetration when they crushed that crown of thorns around his brow, and perforation when they drove the nails into his hands and feet, and incision when they put the spear into his side. The Father and the Son displayed, the Father and the Spirit displayed the Son. Words you might have in this verse are propitiation, mercy seat, altar, place of satisfaction. Paul's using a series of nouns, verbs, and modifiers that we have no context in our language for because we don't have that sacrificial system, do we? And so we can only have ideas. We can only have pictures. And so that's what translators are doing in your Bibles. They're giving you pictures They're just because there's no words. In the Ark of the Covenant, there was a place where the priest would go in and give the satisfaction carcass and he would spill the blood on that place called the mercy seat. Hilasterion is the word. Paul is saying, as literally as I can put it, Paul is saying, in verse 25, the body of Jesus itself is the altar. His body is that place on the Ark of the Covenant where the blood, the cosmic currency, spills over. His body is that. When we think of the righteousness of God, how does justice and mercy come together in this great paradox? How does punishment and salvation come together? His body, his body is the mercy seat. It holds the blood. This, uh, the theological density of this passage is just, I, I've been studying it for three months, and you know, what I'm doing here is not hard. Tuesday, I had nothing to say. That's hard. <laughs> That's stressful. When you're going to go up in front of a few thousand people, and you have, I have no idea what to okay. say. I, I, I've searched this, I've gone backwards and forwards in this passage, and I have no idea what to say. And every day this week, I sat in my car and all I heard about was death and the corpses of women and children and crushed babies' bodies under rubble. And then I heard on NPR of a Palestinian man describing the scent of burnt human blood. And at that moment, I resolved that this message would be about nothing but the blood and the blood and the blood. The Word of God says, The life of the flesh is in the blood. And so after I had this experience on Tuesday, I set aside my whole day and I put away all the fun books and I put away all the fun commentaries and I set with this one and I took out a highlighter. And for the whole day, I went through the whole Old Testament and I found blood in every single book. Would you like to take a tour with me of what I found? Here it is. Genesis 3, darkness crouched to the door of humanity. And from that moment, Genesis 4, the Lord says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now the ground is cursed. It's opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Genesis 22, as the blood of the chosen son is to be spilled, the Lord established his word that in this covenant of blood and sacrifice, he will provide the lamb, he will provide the sacrifice for those he calls by his word. Exodus 7, he has stretched out his hands over the nations at war and he turns their water into blood. Exodus 12, his word says, the blood shall be a sign on your life and when I see the blood on your life, I'll pass over you. Leviticus, the Lord articulates his priestly law in great detail. Do you know how many times I found blood in Leviticus? 94 times the blood and the blood and the blood. And Numbers 35 says the spilling of the blood pollutes the world and there is no expiation for the spilling of the blood but the spilling of the blood who first spilled the blood. Deuteronomy 12 says the blood is the life it's more precious than water. You should not spill it or pour it out. Deuteronomy 19 says do not shed innocent blood for if you do, Deuteronomy 32, he will avenge the blood spilled. He will render his vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will atone for the land and his people. And you're still not convinced after the Pentateuch. You're still not convinced. So I'll keep going. Very well, Joshua says that one should spill blood in repentance and seek refuge. He'll find it in the people of God. And Joshua, therefore, also says that it is by the scarlet blood that one should find that refuge. Judges shows the lawlessness of mankind will butcher itself and spill blood, but the Spirit of God will still be working. And Ruth shows that the faithful, providential bloodline of God is in the coming Messiah. But the books of Kings in 2 Samuel 7 says this bloodline will not simply be a Messiah. He'll also be a king. He'll be a ruler. In the books of Chronicles of that this Messiah will come about 490 years to the date of its writing, but only through the spilling of the slaughtered lamb, and its blood, and blood, and scarlet red spilled over the propitiation altar of sacrifice, and so Ezra and Nehemiah in exile, the word of the Lord says that they discover the holy blood sacrifice law of Moses, and they reinstitute it to the people of God, and although they are unfaithful, the Lord is faithful, and it is through the blood ordinances that one is redeemed from exile and brought back to the Lord. Lord. And Esther tells a story that no matter the bloodshed against the people of God, he will overcome the the bloodshed of the people of God. His plan will not be thwarted. Job says, get this, Job says that the, the, the Lord is so sovereign that it is he who gives to the hawk food from afar so it can give blood to his young ones. Psalms, he requires blood payment and will we remember the cries of the afflicted? Proverbs, evil waits to desecrate the blood. Ecclesiastes, there's a time for every event of blood underneath heaven. And Solomon's song says the blood of life is in romance. That, Sol- Solomon's always a stretch, guys. It's hard to preach Solomon. But the prophets, the prophets say that should you put a prophet to death, the blood of that prophet will be on your hands. It will be on your clothes. Ezekiel prophesies that the Lord is your origin. He is your birth. As a mother, he wiped the blood from your skin and said, live. And therefore your dry bones, they will cry out in flesh and blood of resurrection someday and they will hear, know that I am the Lord. Daniel decrees on behalf of heaven the 77 weeks of the 490 years determined by the word of the Lord in 2 Chronicles 36 that the time of the Messiah in flesh and blood has come. And Hosea, he prophesies the Lord will bandage that bloody servant and raise him up who is the true representative of Israel on the third day and Joel prophesies, tremble in fear everyone. The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. When the the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned to. Amos and Obadiah condemn the drinking of pagan blood. Jonah shows that the Lord's elective compassion is so great, he'll even execute it against bloodshed. Micah swears upon the kingly bloodline of Bethlehem of old. Nahum and Habakkuk cry out with women and children in the east. Lord, see the violence. See the bloodshed. The Lord responds to the violence and bloodshed and says, woe to human bloodshed, woe to the bloody cities of many slain, a mass of corpses, countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. Behold, declares the Lord, I am against you. And Zephaniah prophesies, be silent before the Lord your God. The day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice of blood, and then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice. He will deal with them, for their bloodshed near is the great day of the Lord. Listen for the Lord. Haggai prophesies of a new temple purified in blood sacrifice and Zechariah prophesies the blood of my covenant the Lord says is with you. Be silent all flesh. The Lord has been aroused from his habitat. Behold he's coming on that day. I will dwell with you in your midst in flesh and blood and you will know that I am the Lord. I will remove your iniquity and my servant will be your priest. And behold declares the word of the Lord through Malachi. I am coming. This is my servant, my priest who brings the pure blood covenant sacrifice in his temple. And lastly I saved for you, Isaiah 53. I wish I could read it all, but I can't. It's too long. Here's one sentence from verse 7. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughtering balk. Worthy is the lamb. This is the word of the Lord on blood. You see, Paul is referring to the story of humanity, the whole of history, in verse 21 and 25, when he says, but now God acted in history, for history, through the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot read this text and not taste the blood in your mouth. There's no other way to read the text. God is going to judge you and me. And if he does, and when he does, if we are in Christ, he will not see your blood. He will see his own. Because his death was supposed to be our death. But now, he died that death. Therefore, his resurrection is your hope and your resurrection. This is the gospel in your life. It is the great, vicarious, unmerited exchange of righteousness, For unrighteousness, this is his last full measure of devotion. There is a breakdown in the logic of extreme devotion because if you say, I bet you say, where's the logic in that? Where's the logic in the exchange and the vicarious, unmerited exchange of righteousness? Well, there's a breakdown in the logic of, of extreme devotion. If you can explain it, if it makes sense, then it is not extravagant enough. And have you heard the song that you sang this morning, his reckless love? It's absolutely reckless. This is the gospel in your life. Verse 24. Verse 24 and 28 of this passage, Paul says, I maintain that man is not justified by works of the law. He's justified by a gift that was given and only accessible through faith. Justification by faith. The all too great, all too beautiful doctrine. Here it is. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do. We are justified by faith. My friend, Todd, he knows who he is. He, a few weeks ago, he was saying, you know, I... I believe, I believe in this illustration of, you know, God is a judge. And, he, and there's a sentence on our lives, and he steps down from his seat, and he comes and takes the punishment. I believe that. I believe it's true. But it doesn't do it for me. It's missing something. And so, you know, I mean you guys tell me stuff. I think, I think about it. I think, and I think about it, and I think about it. And I realize Todd's right. That is true, but it's not the whole truth. It's one part of the truth. The doctrine of justification by faith is one part excusing from sin, and it's a whole other part of welcoming in. What good is it the summer bell to ring in May if you just stay in the classroom? That bell is only as good as if you get to go out and be with your friends and stay up late. Right? And so the great doctrine of, ju- of justification by faith, it's not just simply an excusing from something, but it's a welcoming into another thing. Doctrines are abstract, and I realize, you know, unless you're a Calvinist, you know, the word of doctrine just, just, just die inside a little bit, which is by the hearing of the word, and I understand that. But I maintain that every great New Testament doctrine, all the doctrines of the New Testament, you can find a Jesus story about them that illustrates them better than you could ever hope or imagine. And There's no better story than the doctrine of justification by faith that's represented in Luke 23, 39 through 43. You know the story. One of the criminals who was hanging there railed against him saying, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him saying, Don't you fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we rightly so. We're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Jesus, will you remember me when I come into your kingdom? And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. I haven't found anyone who has illustrated this passage, and therefore the doctrine of justification by faith, better than the great Alistair Begg, the great preacher, old preacher, evangelical preacher. Uh, Alistair Begg says, if you were to die tonight and gain entry into heaven, what what would you say, why would you be gaining entry into heaven? Why, why, are you gonna, why, why do you think you're gaining entry into heaven? And he says, if you answer, if I answer, that in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I. Well, because I'm a Christian. Or because I have faith. Because I believed. Well, because my parents If we don't answer that, Beg says, in the third person, we've gone completely wrong. Because he. Because he. Because he. His faithfulness. His last full measure of devotion. Do you see? Justification by faith. Yours? did not cut it. You need someone else's. Imagine. Playfully imagine with me. This is where it gets beautiful, friends. It's been ugly. Let's look at the beauty. Imagine. The pearly gates. And you're in that. In, in this, this criminal. This criminal who's hanging on the cross. He's in the admissions line. He's got saints behind him. He's got saints in front of him. He's feeling a little weird. He's feeling a little nervous. He's, he's there, but he didn't. It, there's a conversation that's waiting ahead of him. So he's in this line, and he comes up. He comes up to the angel of the admissions desk. And the angel says, oh, Hello how, why are you here? And the criminal just says, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? I don't don't know. don't know. Okay, well, think, I mean, were you baptized? Were your parents Catholic? The criminal's just staring back at him like, Church membership, um, Bible studies. Perhaps you went through like a Hillsong phase before their debacle. <laughs> the criminals just staring there. Just okay. Well, we can work with this. Um, here, here, give me a, give me your stance on just a couple doctrines. Should be should be good. Creationism, uh, doctrine of Scripture, um, a doctrine of justification. Your stance on those. criminal says, never heard of any of that. Right. Let me get my supervisor. Michael! Michael comes down. Tongues of angels are going on. The archangel comes over. On what basis are you here? criminal says. Well, the man on the middle cross told me I could come. Justification by faith is not simply an excusing of sin. It's a welcoming into something entirely new. It's no wonder Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, angels hear the gospel. Do you know how they respond? In mystery and in wonder and beauty. Worthy is the lamb. Justification by the faith of Jesus. There's nothing you can do. Don't you get that? Martin Luther said the church must be beat over the head with this doctrine over and over and over and over again until it gets it. You're justified by faith. There's nothing you can do. Perhaps your problem is pride. What's your your plan? Five steps to better spiritual wealth and wealth. Try harder at being humble. Doesn't cut it. You're justified by faith. Perhaps your problem is self image. What's your plan? A book on self-forgiveness and self-love and self-respect doesn't cut it. You're justified by faith. You must be beat over the head with this doctrine over and over and over. The only choice we have is you were enslaved to something and you've been bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 7, you were bought at a price. Redemption justification by faith means there's nothing you can do. His faith alone finished it. He was the one who took the last full measure of devotion. Surrender is really the only suitable verb that we can use when it comes to gospel revival. The revival of the gospel in history, in your city, in your school, it begins with the gospel revival in your heart. Societal reformation begins with personal transformation. I'm not calling you to surrender to his might today. That's for his enemies to do. I'm calling you to surrender to his love. Surrender is really the only verb suitable for gospel revival. I can remember my but now moment in my own life. It was a cold morning in February. It was dark. I'd known the gospel my whole life. And then the dear words of Paul, we maintain that one is not justified by his own merit, but by faith. And it hit me, this amazing grace, I was blind. You've heard the gospel proclaimed today, not by me, by the word of God. Move your history forward. You need to take a revival every day. You got to shower every day. You need a revival every day. It is only through the proclamation of the gospel that history moves forward, that the West is saved, that the East is saved. And this Rome that's failing, it's only through the gospel that its people will be saved. Amen. I'm going to pray. And then G is going to come and uh, excuse us. Lord, this is your word. And I ask that you who began a good work would finish it in us by your spirit. You've tilled the soil, and now the seed went in. Make it grow. In Jesus' name, amen.